Verulam Sports. Hello and welcome to Verulam Sports Cast on your Saturday evening, six through seven o'clock, where each and every single week we debate, dissect, and of course analyze a sporting topic of your choosing. And this week we kind of teased it a little bit last week, but always it's come from you. And this week, we take and expand on a little bit of fantasy play in the sporting context that we enjoyed. And I'm sure you did too last week. And we are playing Winter Wonderland. The beast from the east has ravaged the country. And of course, here in Hertfordshire, reminding us that we are firmly in the froze of winter. So we are wanting to warm your cockles with great sporting debate and playing Winter Wonderland. What we're doing is we are playing fantasy sports where either for upcoming potential exciting possibilities currently in the realm of potential or from the past mixing the present and everything in between. We are thinking of sporting collisions, titanic tussles and imaginary sporting scenarios that we would love to have seen or maybe one day we'll see. Exciting, right? And I know, I just know, you've got loads of opinions with this. I know these are the kind of conversations you have with your friends all over the land. Get involved. It's your show. We chat every single bit as much as it is ours. Tweet at Verulam Sports. Email in with more in-depth analysis of your Winter Wonderlands fantasy sporting collisions. Email us sport at radioverulam.com. Got to say, and I know I say it every week, I'm so enthused for us. I live for talking to you on Sportscast. It makes me a happy wee man. And it's an honour and a privilege to do just that alongside my friend and colleague, the legendary, the iconic, the machine, Jason McKenna. Jason, how you doing? I'm great, Tony. It's, as you said there, it's one of my highlights every week as well, talking about sports on Verulam Sport for the community on a topic that they have chosen. It's always great fun to see what people have sent in. And talking on that, we do like the social media that people are sending in. And you can always find us at the Twitter handle, at Verulam Sport. You can always tweet at Radio Verulam as well. That will get through to us. And we've got the Radio Verulam Facebook page. But also email. You can email email us in sport at radioverulam.com. Really easy to reach us. There's lots of different methods of getting through to us. But this week, with the fantasy sporting clashes, as we let you know a few weeks ago on the Twitter vote that we had, um, the discussion points have been coming through. One person said a fantasy sporting clash that they wanted to see was St. Albans City FC winning the Premier League and FA Cup. I mean... Setting the bar quite low, you know, with a, a double there. <laughs> you know what? Talking fantasy, though, okay, it's um, St. Albans City are one of the most engaged with teams on uh, a Premier League uh, on Football Manager. And obviously, in that kind of context, um, people do take them to the Champions League. And of course, uh, folk focused in and supported by Enter Shikari, a fantasy happens and again i know it's uh we are playing winter wonderland we are talking fantasies here it is a little bit fantastical but it was only a few seasons ago that for instance bournemouth who i know right now are in the championship but they were on the cusp of getting relegated into the national leagues which would only be like a, two, a couple of leagues above the at the moment unbeaten saints 
look, you know, all I'm saying is it happens. These things happen. And I tell you what, Jason, that's why we love sports. But it is a little bit of a fantastical shout at the moment. But I love it. I love it too. And I tell you what, I'm probably one of those people that contribute to the fantasy football management numbers because I also choose the Saints and try and bring them into the Champions League. Um, it Have take... you ever won the Champions League in your um, machine-like g- gaming capacity? <laughs> no, the furthest I got is the Championship, but because it takes, it's a long old schlep, it takes a long old while coming from that level up and up and up and up. Uh, I actually started it at the start of... March last year, you know, when the first lockdown happened, I thought, well, I've got a bit yep. of time now. I'm going to use that. And I tried to live out the fantasy. I haven't quite got there yet. Uh, you know what? I can let people know if I get there. It's, it's very presumptuous to assume that I will get there because it's, it's a Jason, really I have hard every thing. faith. I have every <laughs> faith in your gaming capacities, uh, your footballing IQ. Uh, I tell you, honestly, you know, keep us updated as you pursue the goal of uh, maybe one day taking on the ticker-tacker stylings of Barcelona <laughs> in the Champions League with a mighty save. I, I have employed Tiki Taka there, but what's an interesting other footballing topic is left and right footed football stars. Somebody sent in it would be nice to see an all time 11 of left footed footballers versus right footed footballers to see which leg is best. I don't know why this is important to, to football fans to know which leg is better, left or right, but that is one that somebody has sent in. Now, Something. I'll tell you what, super quickly, Jason. What's instantly occurred to me when you brought that one up is, again, you know, I've had many a long gripe about England's paltry efforts post-66 in football uh, tournaments. And, again, we are in the world of fantasy, so I'm going to indulge, particularly in tonight's Winter Wonderland context. And I'm going to imagine, if and only if, Ryan Giggs had pursued a pathway, of course, was an England schoolboy international before becoming... Uh, uh, you know, choosing firmly uh, the the path of the Wales international. Just think again. It's I'm not saying that Ryan Giggs alone would have made a difference, but if we consider all the difficulties we've had over the years trying to find that balance in that England midfield, um, I'm sure. Well. Pete Giggs is certainly not going to be harming any England's chances. And let's be honest, history shows us that we've achieved nothing at all without him. So indulging in fantasy, I'm going to say if Giggs, left-footed, naturally, had chosen England, as indeed I believe he actually captained England's schoolboys, then, well, I'm going to say this, there's at least one other bit of silverware in the England trophy cabinet. But don't you just love those sweet, sweet nuts that come from the ifs and those buts? <laughs> it's a very fascinating kind of discussion point and that there is lots of what ifs with football uh, kind of transitioning nations but another big what if is the greatest tennis star of all time and obviously there's the debate of who's best on which court or across courts because quite often you see a match between two individuals and one will dominate because they're on the clay and one on the grass and we're talking obviously here about Federer and Nadal one person has sent in a message saying it'd be cool to see Federer on grass Nadal on clay and see who wins who is the actual best now I did a little bit of research on this actually and there has been a Federer versus Nadal clay slash grass court it didn't actually work as intended because Nadal actually had a a bit of an unfair advantage because of the way the court worked it meant that the ball kind of was much easier for him to control and not for Nadal Nadal 
uh, almost in many instances, because Federer was on the grass side, the ball bounced differently to what he would expect. So that one's kind of been had, but it would be interesting if there was a way to, to almost equalise, but also give the uh, strengths to each player in that uh, court setting. It's fascinating, and I love it. But I'm going to um, kind of flick a slice backhand back at this one and say this much. I've had this conversation, I think, in previous podcasts with you. Um, obviously, it's brilliant when we play these kind of fantastical-type de- debates. Uh, and sometimes I find that there's a, a kind of a desire within us to kind of want to make things binary, and as I say, Federer and Nadal both equal at the moment on 20 Grand Slams. They are the natural binary uh, all time. And of course, in this era. But Djokovic was 17, younger than both. I've said it before, and I actually believe that Djokovic uh, has the hybrid game, the advantage uh, of relative youth compared to both the aforementioned um, Fed Express and Nadal. And I'm going to say, actually, that Djokovic will become the winningest of all time and has done it across all courts, has beaten all comers across all courts. And for me, whilst he doesn't necessarily get the love of the British public and not necessarily even the wider uh, tennis uh, neutral, I'm going to say Djokovic is the man and represents that kind of best of both uber skills that both Federer and Nadal boast. Just by report forward, so I'll tell you, love your views on them. Tweet us at Verulam Sport. Email in to sport at radioverulam.com. Uh, what else has uh, the world of our engagement been giving us this week, keeping you uber busy? I think this one's quite a funny one. Probably meant tongue-in-cheek. I don't know if they even wanted this on here, but somebody said a style of Olympics where... I am good at something and I can win a gold like the international eating dry cereal competition. I mean, that that could be quite good. We all walk away with some gold medal that we know that we're really good at. I don't know what mine would be. Uh, I don't know, knowledge on Arsenal or something like that, Tony. I don't know what your specialty would be. But it would be nice if there was an Olympics of everything that can be considered a sport. <laughs> It's fascinating. I'll tell you what, well, I've just done an interesting podcast, uh, which I'm going to encourage people to engage with, with the wonderful Susie Moody. Um, Susie is um, the, let me just get the facts. Susie Moody is the strategic manager for Home Starts in Hertfordshire that Radio Brown supports massively. And we were talking about the uh, great pancake flip-off pre-lockdown. That was always done outside, and last year, uh, bizarrely, it was won by a team from Japan who were filming a TV series about these kind of unique uh, events that happened, not just in England, but right around the world. It got onto Japanese TV. It got huge across social media. Anyway, they are doing it virtually this year. Do check out that podcast, and if you can get involved, they are bidding for a Guinness record in terms of the number of people doing a Zoom pancake flipping. And who'd have thought that a year ago? Anyway, the reason I brought this up, Jason, is because uh, to provide that context, given that it was a Verum Sports uh, podcast, I looked up the Oxford English definition of sports. And it runs like this. Any activity 
involving physical exertion and skill in which an individual or team uh, competes against another or others for entertainment. So I'm not entirely sure by the dint of their, it does mention, categorically mentions ex physical exertion. Not quite sure how much, I don't know, dry uh, food munching might be, but I'm sure we can all find something along those lines. Certainly Tiddlywinks, Marbles and all those other ones do fall into that. But I tell you what, if you are great at an unusual sport or if you're involved in an unusual sport like pickleball that we've featured in the past and you want to be profiled, it's your show every bit as much as it is ours. I want to hear from you. I want to give you a platform. Tweet us at Verulam Sport. Email in to sport at radioverulam.com. Remember, again, it is your show. Each and every single bit as much as it is ours. I want to hear from you. What you engage. I want to hear from you about your, your unusual talents, your unusual sports. We'll give you a profile. We'll give you a platform. It's one of the great things that we are honoured and privileged to do here on Sportscast and indeed across Radio Verum uh, Podcasting. Jason, I know you've been super busy. I'm conscious of time. Is there any of the final top lines across the world of social media from the wonderful listener? I think there's a, a couple that are quite fun here. One of the best ones that I like, because I'm such a big fan of him, a mixed martial arts match of Bruce Lee versus anyone to see who is the greatest of all time. I mean, often Bruce Lee is banded as the greatest martial artist of all time. He obviously didn't have a, a huge career in the, the ring as it would be now so he doesn't have that kind of formal backing of of his ability to fight however on screen he was sensational maybe he was a choreographer or maybe he really was a good fighter but we don't know that and that would be a great question to be answered there something that maybe you can give more of an insight to here tony somebody messaged in and said the best rugby team in the world versus the best American football team in the world. Uh, and they said that it would be a rugby match, then an American football match to kind of test who is the best uh, at that kind of sporting expertise there. I mean, is that actually possible? Or, or do you think that the, the skill sets are so widely varied that it's not possible? And this is beyond even the mythical fantasy sporting clashes. It's a really fascinating one. Um, but whilst I know this is all about fantasy and I love it so much, I'll just give you an idea. When rugby first turned professional, uh, if, you, if you want to consider kind of American football almost a cousin of rugby, then its direct younger brother is rugby league. And they tried like a cross-code game uh, where I think one half was rugby league, one half was rugby union between Bath and Wigan. And it was just ridiculous. The rugby league guys smashed the Bath guys at league and it was just not even a contest in union. Um, so it was just a really, really farcical. And the skill set differential in uh, rugby and in American football is so divergent. Martin Johnson, England's Rugby World Cup winner, uh, used to play tight ends for the Leicester Panthers, uh, a team local to Leicester. Um, tight end, and he's, he's a very uh, high sporting IQ, Mr. Johnson, a real kind of uh, sporting nerd. I'm sure he wouldn't object to me saying, although I wouldn't say it to his face. Uh, but the bottom line is this. He defines rugby as a contact sport and American football as a collision sport. And whilst there are scrums and rucks and some of the techniques mold over 
The blocking in the, uh, you know, up front in the offensive and defensive line in American football is so nuanced. It, w- it takes years and 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 years to even be able to kind of compute it. Um, so whilst I can totally understand um, the question and I like the thought process, just the historical antecedent of that very close, or at least so you would think, game of league into game of union we've seen uh, was borderline farcical. And I would only imagine um, that any kind of hybrid type game of rugby and uh, American football would be similar. What would be supremely fascinating would be maybe to take some really skillful American footballers and some really skillful rugby union players and give them a little bit of time. And if you put it on what you might consider an equaliser, which I'm not a huge fan of being a bit of a dinosaur, as you know, the game of sevens, for instance, where it's just seven v seven. Um, I think that could be really, really exciting. And I would suggest, given enough time, I mean, USA in, in rugby uh, are consistently up there with the greats of the world in sevens. So it wouldn't surprise me you could take the creme de la creme of the NFL, who are amongst the most off-the-charts athletes in all of the world. Yeah, I think um, they could well be not only competitive, but it wouldn't shock me that, that they, uh, you know, could win in a game of sevens for me i love i love rugby it's always going to be my first love big fan of the nfl uh, as you know um not a huge fan of sevens i love the fact that it's an olympic sport because again it's at least flying the flag for rugby and of course therefore there's the, every chance that that brings in and grows the game in a general principle in a game in context of sevens yeah i think that's a fascinating one one for fantasy and i tell you what it's not fantastical to say that over time the nfl players with their natural athleticism and their unique professionalism could well usurp some of the seven best rugby players uh, across the land uh, and indeed the world but there we go that's the closest that i could come to kind of fairly answering that one the final one and i think this is a really fun one is a proposal of a fantasy weightlifting competition with the only rule change being that the weights are made from precious items to the lifter so that when they drop them they have to do so carefully otherwise they'll smash you know their mother's or grandmother's special china i think that could be a a really fun concept there tony Oh, can you imagine, obviously, because then you, you're factoring in that competitive spirit and that obviously that need to win versus, oh, my goodness me, you can imagine looking into the crowd, seeing your 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 other half, your significant other, and you're debating with yourself, well, I just need to put, you know, one extra kilo on this. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, if I put that ring on and this uh, <laughs> bit of cutlery on, I can do it. But, oh, I don't know if it smashes, is it worth it. I mean, that's a fascinating one. I like that an awful lot. Uh, I can imagine an awful lot of uh, pressure that gets amped up in that one. Great call. I love that. And I love your listeners' views. I love that everybody's engaged, as always. It's your show. 
every bit as much as it is ours. Continue to tweet us with your winter wonderlands, your fantasy sporting collisions, uh, both historically in the realm of imagination or what might be up ahead of us in the future, currently just residing in the world of uh, potential. Tweet at Verulam Sport. Email in sport at radioverulam.com with a more thorough in-depth analysis. But now to provide a more thorough and indeed in-depth analysis of his first choice this week for a winter wonderland, a sporting fantasy, a thrilling collision, which at the moment is just part of the world of imagination. Machine McKenna, what on earth are you going to unleash upon us? This would be the season to end all seasons in F1 up until now. And it would answer the age-old question of who is the greatest F1 driver of all time? So I've come up with this idea of the fantasy F1 season because I want to know who is the greatest of all time. Is it Senna, the driver's driver's choice, or is it somebody that maybe is more of a maverick, you know, the James Hunt Alan Prost, there's so many great F1 drivers out there that you can kind of make the case for any and all of them. But the big problem is, as with any kind of comparison with footballers, rugby's, uh, rugby players, whatever, you they haven't played at the same time, they haven't had the same equipment. So I want to ensure with this fantasy F1 season, maximum fairness, uh, in this F1 season, there would be all sorts of conditions, tracks and weathers to show the differing abilities of the drivers. So we'd have some wet tracks, we'd have some dry ones, we'd have Japan, you know, which is kind of a a higher altitude, but then you'd have Monaco, which is on the streets. I want to be able to showcase all the differing abilities of these drivers so that there's no excuse to say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is really good at this kind of track and it wasn't on this kind of track and therefore it wasn't fair. We're going to have none of that. There would also be, um, as I said there, a selection of tracks, but the cars would all be exactly the same. I don't want any difference. Again, I don't want any discussions about, oh, well, Lewis Hamilton has the best car on the grid. This Mercedes car is ridiculously good, and so nobody can compete with it. In this fantasy world, all the cars are exactly the same, same specification. All the drivers get the same amount of time to kind of train on it. There's no advantages here. And, of course, (laughs) to add extra fantasy to this fantasy none of the cars would ever break down all the races would happen in full uh the crashes and whatever i would try and eliminate crashes but maybe that is not possible drivers wouldn't get ill so that they can just see out the season now the big problem here is obviously i want to include as many f1 world drivers champions as possible but there's 33 different world drivers champions all time so There is a discussion point here. Maybe, Tony, you can help me with this one. But in my fantasy world, there could be an extended grid. Or we could go back to about the 60s, 70s, where there was a shootout before people even qualified. It was pre-qualification, which I think is a a really mad concept to think of now. But back then... But know what? I love it. Because (laughs) the evolved version in our modern time, isn't it? And I quite like this, um, is that they have almost like a staggered qualification process, don't they? 
and you know if you get a certain time then you, you again it affects grid placings etc cetera, etc cetera. in a way that's kind of the evolved version of this uh this way of doing things so i think embrace it jason let's have all 33 in a neutral car and that could be maybe uh well i think just off the top of my head just engage uh with the fantasy here is that maybe across the season they have different cars but as long as it all is the same parity so we have the very earliest car starting things off the earliest tech again with a mindset that that's you know it doesn't really matter because it's it's equal then we go through the very so they've still got uh time to practice with these things they're still in the level of uh like total parity of course those who have the natural affinity for it you'd think would have the advantage but maybe not but over the time like i say i think this would be a fascinating x factor to add to the fantasy but whirling it back to your particular point there jason i say we embrace that early kind of knockout uh event whereby there's only let's call it 32 places on the grid and that uh we still have our three-day qualification process which by the way will give these uber good drivers not only uh time to understand the track but the various configuration of their uh, cars um, you know, for me, that's the way we that's the way we play this uh, this particular fantasy out. Yeah, I think that's an important point there as well. Is that the drivers they all have the same car, but they can change certain configurations within parameters. F one is uh, basically ruled by so many different rules and regulations that I'm sure that the FIA could think of some ways to make sure that they have enough leeway to kind of maybe change the braking balance, front and back load, and, and all those sorts of things, so that there was fairness in that sense. But, of course, Hamilton is going to drive much more differently to somebody like Jensen Button or Nico Rosberg, who, you know, the, the story with Button was always, he was such a smooth driver that often you wouldn't need to change the tyres with him. But maybe somebody like Senna would have to change the tyres two or three times. But they're more aggressive. They're going to take the corners in much more of an aggressive fashion so by equalizing everything else out you can really see almost not only who the best driver is but maybe the best driving style as well um, I like the shout of different cars but what I think in my fantasy land here would be having a neutral car that nobody's ever kind of drived or anything I mean there's a possibility of both kind of styles over a two-course season, but my initial thoughts were, in my head, was a neutral car that is very different from any other car, maybe a bit smaller than the current one, so that everybody has to adapt and learn to it in a, a training period like they do now. You can have a certain amount of hours to work on it, but then that's it. You've had your training. You can uh, do this and do that to it. And also with the car, once the season starts, no additions. Because you kind of often see, like uh, the double diffuser that we saw yep. with Jensen Button when he won with Braun GP, cars that then incorporated that later on in the season then basically caught up in it and it removed the advantage that they had. I don't want any kind of high-tech changes. I mean, it's great to, to see these amazing evolvements in technology, but we're here for the drivers. We're not here to, to see, oh, a, a second kind of double diffuser or an ability to get extra suction onto the track. 
I've got no worries about that. I want to see who the best driver is. And that is the $64 million question. Uh, and I know it's super subjective. Um, Jason, what got me salivating was the prospect within this uh, kind of mini uh, unique world, uh, this mini universe of fantasy F1 that we're playing here, would be Senna versus Hamilton in the wet. Oof. I know Schumacher was also <laughs> very good in the wet, but those two um, have a particular style, both of whom are unique, but both have a tendency towards aggression and both are renowned for their prowess when it gets wet. So that got me salivating, and I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. But, Jason, like I say, the $64 million question is, within this world of total equality, all things are literally being equal, where it comes down to what we all would love, which is to say, who is the supreme driver? All time, Jason, for you, my gut says you're going to go Senna. But obviously, Schumacher remains the winningest. Hamilton is the man on form. Momentum's a powerful thing. So many Mavericks, Hunt, you mentioned. Uh, let's not forget other Brits, Mansell as well. The list goes on. Who is the man, Jason, for you? It's so difficult because the the thing that... Hey, it would be fun if it wasn't difficult, <laughs> Jason. This is the realm of fantasy. Head on the block time in this fantastical world. Don't overthink it. Who will be at the end of this wonderful, mythical, literally impossible season, if we're being frank, who is going to prove to be the champion of champions? I think it will be Senna top and Hamilton second. I think j just the abilities of Senna were, were unmatched, unparalleled. And I think his braveness would see it out. And if the cars don't break down as well, I think that would see him out as well because sometimes he pushed the car too much. But if he has no worries about that, if he can kind of go in and think, you know, I'm, I'm not going to damage the gearbox or whatever. I'm not going to have to drive the last few laps on the Brazilian Grand Prix with no handbrake or, or whatever. The, that element will be there that he can just enjoy the drive. And when Senna's enjoying the drive... I don't think there's anybody that holds a light to him. I don't think even Hamilton would really be upset by me saying this. I think Hamilton has said it so many times that uh, the, the loss of Senna was heartbreaking to him, but he always knows that he is one of the best or the best driver of all time. And for me as well, I'd love to see Senna get that over Alan Prost as well, just to kind of cement that that victory there between I, those I gotta two. I've got to say, I can't think anybody <laughs> on the world uh, would like that more than yourself, except perhaps for Senna himself. Uh, I mean, what a <laughs> challenge, Jason. What a great way to embrace our winter wonderland. Um, I do always bow to your F1 knowledge. It's, it's superior to my own. But I'm going to just give my gut feeling on this. Uh, and again, it's entirely subjective. Love your views. Tweet us at Barrow Sports. I know you've got opinions on this one. Um, but my gut is actually, there is a very good reason why Michael Schumacher at this moment in time, uh, alongside Hamilton, is the winningest with seven. And I think that this style would appeal to the Uber competitor within this Uber competitor. And I think that recognising the flair and the prowess of all these wonderful drivers and do appreciate um, the utter supreme talent of Senna. But just my gut is telling me that Michael Schumacher 
would really, really want to put this to bed and say, look, there's no debating about this. There's no questions asked. There's a reason that I surpassed everybody. There's a reason why I had so many, so much successes. And people wanted to put this out on my, my car and this and that, my team. It's me, number one. I'm the man. And that's, that's my shout. I think Michael Schumacher, across the season, across total parity, would find the way to win. But that's just a gut feeling. All of these things in this really fun conversation are entirely subjective. It's a heck of a lot of fun. I know you've got your views. Tweet us at Verum Sports on who would win in a fantasy F1 season comprising all 33 all-time uh, racing champs, F1. And also, it is a number one chat topic i know you've got your views on generally sporting fantasies we're calling it winter wonderlands who would you have loved to have witnessed if all things were possible you could have a time machine and bring back somebody from our time to take on their time ending these debates of inter-era quality and clashes i know you love to have them with your friends get involved with us tweet at verulam sport email us for more thorough in-depth analysis to uh, sport at radioverulam.com uh, just before i unleash my first own personal sporting fantasy and i've had a lot of fun playing around with uh, a reminder of course that there's an awful lot of fun world-class not fantasy radio but real bona fide world-class radio for you to enjoy after we go off the airwaves seven through eight it's the music hour or as i like to call it the music mega mix where literally you're gonna find something for you just eclectic diverse wonderful tunes across all eras all genres upbeat fun just something new you might find a new tune fall in love with it rediscover an old fave and anything that one of life's joys that is the music hour seven through eight after which, it's the Dave Ellis Soul Show, 8 through 10, with the uh, man himself, Dave Ellis, the guru of all things soul, blues, and R&B, one of the coolest men, delivering one of the coolest shows on 92.6 FM, the Dave Ellis Soul Show. Then, after which, keep a date with 92.6 FM throughout your Saturday evening, because you're in for a treat with my friend, the godfather, as I call him, Derek Staines, and Saturday Late Date. He is a broadcaster par excellence, and he's going to entertain you from 10 through midnight with his Saturday Late Date. Keep a date already in the diary for next week, where we're encouraging you to keep an eye across social media, because we're going to relaunch, refresh, and invite you to choose our next three-week sportscast. We'll be up with the first of those next Saturday, 6 through 7. Keep a date for that. Keep involved with us across social media. Remember always, it's your show. Every single bit, as much as it is ours. But now, it's my turn to unleash my first sporting fantasy. And it's this one. I am going to go Ian Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet, versus quite simply, the greatest, Muhammad Ali. Uh, look, I think, again, we're in the world of utter fantasy here, aren't we? Obviously, we're talking different eras, uh, different styles. And we can, I think, for this, set aside career records. Tyson's career record, though, I will state the facts. 58 fights, 50 wins, 44 by KO, with six defeats and two no contests. Muhammad Ali, 61 fights, 56 wins, 37 by way of KO with five losses. 
Um, but my goodness me, for me, this is the clash for the ages. Um, I mean, Tyson remains uh, the youngest heavyweight champion of the world when he achieved that feat, aged just 20 years of age, four months and 22 days. As you may have guessed, the man he knocked out to take the title, which he, he holds onto as the youngest heavyweight champion of the world, was the greatest, Muhammad Ali, who was just 22 himself when he beat Sonny Liston way back in 1964, the first of his three world titles. Tyson won 19 of his first pro fights by KO, and a remarkable 12 of those came in the first rounds. He was, quite simply, unboxable in that early career. And, you know, I just dearly would have loved to have seen him tackle and tussle with the man who it is uh, not hyperbole to refer to as the greatest. I mean, Ali himself is the, uh, what I think remains, the only man to have reclaimed the heavyweight championship on three occasions. Tyson did reclaim his, making him a two-time round uh, champion of the world. But Ali is undisputed in being unique in the fact that he's reclaimed the heavyweight championship on three separate occasions. Of course, everybody knows the rumble in the jungle. Check out various other podcasts. We've paid massive homage to Muhammad Ali, not least in our uh, Mount Rushmore of sports, where I think it was generally agreed front and center would be Muhammad Ali. That rumble in the jungle, though, was witnessed by 1.5 billion people across the world. The most witnessed sporting event of all time, where, of course, he adopted the famous rope-a-dope technique to unthrone the unbeatable George Foreman and claim his second round, time round, heavyweight championship of the world. They said it couldn't be done. I am the greatest. You better believe it, Mohammed. But Mike Tyson, again, we're talking early Mike Tyson, really, uh, before the Buster Douglas loss, which we've also profiled in the past. That unique fusion of raw aggression allied with D'Amato honed skills were really terrifying. I mean, bona fide, uh, 18 uh, rated, IR rated, X rated horror movie stuff you would be terrified to get into the ring with the devastating early Iron Mike. So we're talking prime time Iron Mike versus prime time Muhammad Ali, who wins in this tussle of styles. And I'm going to provide my answer. I'm going to say that this goes three fights. Uh, Ali also struggled against Joe Frazier. Remember, Joe Frazier... Um, was almost the prototype Mike Tyson doing the customary style peekaboo style of boxing. Um, Mike Tyson was 5'10 with a reach of 73 inches. Ali at 6'3 had much longer reach at 78. But let's not forget, he lost to Frazier in what was originally dubbed the greatest fight of all time when he returned to boxing after a two-and-a-half-year hiatus imposed upon him when he politically refused to join the army. 
and Frazier therefore picked up the baton, was the champ. Technically, therefore, in that first fight, they were two unbeaten fighters going for the title. Frazier had a similar stature and style to Tyson, 5'11 and a half, 73-inch reach, that kind of bob and weave, peekaboo style, uh, almost pitbull-esque in its constant forward motion, remarkable head movements, uh, really troubled Ty, uh, Ali. And indeed, he beat Ali in that first fight back, arguably a little too early in the recovery process for Ali, but that's moot. doesn't matter. Ali always had issues with Frazier. In, fr in the second bout between Ali Frazier, Ali won, and he won quite clean, clear uh, split uh, points decision, unanimous across 15 rounds. And then the one that many people call the fight of the century, which was the uh, thriller in Manila, which took it all out of both fighters, um, which Ali won because Frazier simply could not get off his um, uh, seat uh, after, I think it was round 12 or round 13. Couldn't complete the 15 rounds, but it was so exhausting. Imagine the humidity. But once again, Frazier took Ali all the way. And Ali always struggled against this short, stocky, powerful, bob and weave model that was Joe Frazier. And I tell you something, inspired by Customato, uh, the early Tyson took that model and upgraded it, amplified it, took it to a zenith that has not been seen, I don't think, since. So I think stylistically, they always say styles make fights. And I think stylistically, uh, Tyson would really struggle, uh, really uh, test Ali, who struggled with that similar methodology with Frazier. But I think they go three fights. I think overall, they, the psychology of Ali, uh, which was sometimes a little nefarious, I will always admit that, even as somebody who uh, adores the man, would actually prove uh, a factor. I think across three fights, Ali would get into the head of Tyson. And I think that Ty Ali wins across a similar trilogy, two fights to one. But because of that fury, and again, I'll repeat the facts, Tyson won 19 of his first, uh, um, uh, sorry, he won 19 of his first pro fights by KO, 12 of which in the first round. And they're not just against journeymen, they're against some big names in there. In 86, he stopped Trevor Burbick in the second round to be and remain the youngest heavyweight champion of the world, just 20 years of age. So, yeah, that's my little indulgement in fantasy. Jason, I know you know your onions when it comes to the world of pugilism. What do you think? What's your thoughts on this mouth-watering prospect? I think it's interesting that you talk about the, the psychology and Ali's ability to engage in some of the best trash talk ever, getting people's heads. But... I think there's a, an interesting point about the career of Mike Tyson. And I would say that it depends who is in the corner for Tyson. If Gustamato is still there, that might be a huge changer. Well, another X factor that I've actually got kind of written down here is Gustamato versus Angelo Dundee. Um. which, as you rightly say, it's a fascinating <laughs> one. Now, we've spoken in the past, Jason, and again, Customato. And if you've never seen this, 
I absolutely urge you to check out online the training process that Customato, who essentially represented a father figure for Tyson, who had such a horrific upbringing and literally actually did foster him. Um, but that was towards much later in the Customato career. Customato um, took on uh, Floyd Patterson, took him to heavyweight championship of the world. Um, Joe uh, Flores, um, the first ever Latino light heavyweight champion of the world, um, taking on the father figurehood role of Tyson late in his life. Now, the influence and the focus that Cuss gave Tyson, no doubt about it, influenced him. I'm very convinced. I've fallen in the camp that says if uh, we're talking fantasy, of course, therefore we can use the conditional if Cuss had been a much larger presence in his life. I don't believe we would have had the ear-biting incident. I think we would, talk, we would be talking Iron Mike as maybe the greatest of all time. And I, th I say that maybe, I think we could almost lose the maybe. I believe Cuss had that kind of influence. And I would urge you to check out online the early Tyson training regime with Customado. Very easy to find. It's terrifying. But not only the fury, the power that Tyson naturally possesses just in his DNA, but the way Cuss, alongside another Hall of Fame uh, coach, um, Terry Atlas, trained and worked the young man. But here's the thing, Jason, people actually forget that Cuss actually, really sadly, didn't actually get to see Iron Mike become the champ. Again, did it so young in his career uh, in 86. Again, remains the youngest heavyweight champion all time. 20 years, four months, 22 days. But Cuss died in 85. So, yeah, we, we go on to the 1990 with that Buster Douglas incident. And, you know, I remain and I've stated again for the record just now that I believe Cuss would have kept Tyson on a trajectory which would have maybe been off the charts, a uh, different level, making this entirely hypothetical one almost redundant. But Cuss actually was only an influence, although be a father figure and a training force, he didn't actually see much of Tyson's professional career. Again, that began in 85. He was champion in 86 because died in 85. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, though, because people do recognize the influence on Cuss. As again, I hope I've explained and contextualized. But it wasn't actually as uh, pronounced professionally as we might mythologize. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting factor because he got his 12th win uh, after Cuss died uh, in November 1985 maybe that kind of spurred him on for that one there is always that element in my mind though that obviously he then went on to win the title and his first loss didn't happen way way until Evander Holyfield uh, sorry uh, until Buster Douglas and, and Evander Holyfield that was the kind of time when he had those big problems but in between then, yeah, he, he was heavyweight champion, youngest heavyweight champion, and he, he went about it quite alone. You know, from uh, that initial loss of Customato in 1985, he then went on until 1990, and that was the, the fabled loss to Buster Douglas. But yeah, I there is always that feeling in my head. It was five years, but then... Mike Tyson does talk about that huge loss, how it affected him, how off the the boxing mat he was 
doing all sorts of bad things, taking drugs, uh, lots of women, all that sorts of stuff. And so if... Cussing. He was arrested 38 times by the age of 13, Yeah, uh, just to give the context of this young man's life and the psychology. Basically had no father figure. The influence of Cuss, and again, I urge everybody to check out Tyson's training with Cuss Tomato. It's beautiful in its focused destructivity. I know that's a little bit of a paradox, but it is, it's beautiful in its, its controlled fury. Jason, it's a great point, and it's one I've addressed. But I tell you something, this mythical scenario, this hypothetical scenario, has to include both of the trainers. And I have written Customato, I've explained, and I hope contextualized. But Angelo Dundee, I've spoken about this in the past, his role within Ali cannot be understated either. For a start, most coaches have an instinct to kind of work with the textbook and get people to fight uh, either orthodox or southpaw within certain styles and certain uh, models. Now, Ali's beauty, which again is phenomenal, uh, and I think borderline unique, was totally uh, ripping out those textbooks and to give Angelo Dundee his mammoth credit, he resisted the coaching instinct to want to mould Ali into something more uniform. He recognised this unique gift that Ali possessed and so uh, enabled him to be Ali, it's been quoted. And let's not forget... Every origin, every superhero story has an origin, doesn't it? I'm not going to whip us all the way back to the origin of Ali and the bicycle, which you may choose to believe or you may not. It's fascinating. But one cannot deny that the previous to Tyson, youngest heavyweight champion, Ali was exactly that, aged just 22, when he beat what was previously considered the unbeatable Sonny Liston back in 64. Now, again, I'm not going to get into folklore too much, but it remains the case. I want to say round five um, that uh, Ali, or maybe even round three, Ali was to a certain degree blinded, couldn't see. And, you know, he's 22 years old. He's only, I think, 19 fights into his pro career. A callow youth, granted all the talent in the world, granted an Olympic gold medalist, but he's blinded against a man who's, you know, knocking out everybody before him. And he's terrified. He's literally terrified. He wanted to quit on his stool. And Dundee took control. Real calm. He says, you got him. You got him, Ali. Just dance. You dance for one round and you're champ. And those words, simple words. And Ali did exactly that. You watch the the, the, te- the, the, the video on YouTube, uh, 64 this would be, um, Ali, Sonny, Liston. And he just danced for a round. After that round, three minutes, against this uh, behemoth, this beast that, that was uh, gangster-related, uh, terrifying man, heavyweight champ, Sonny Liston. And he just danced for a round. Got back to his corner again, had a three minutes for things to recover. Bit of water in the eye, calming things down. Heartbeat begins back to normal. And you could see Liston's soul was crushed because he needed him to do him in that round. And Ali's spirit soared. 
But again, I'm not saying that that was all down to Angelo Dundee, but that's what a coach does, isn't it? At the moment, he knew exactly, precisely what to say to Ali and he delivered it and Ali then delivered. And I think in the battle of these two great coaches, overall, I would slightly edge it to Dundee. And I think that's for another reason why I would suggest that um, over the course of three, and maybe this is me hedging my bets a touch here, but hey, we're playing fantasy. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying Ali wins a three-part trilogy, two fights to one. Uh, but I do believe, I do believe the raw power, and we're talking prime time Tyson versus prime time Ali. Uh, I think Tyson gets one. I think it may well indeed be by KO. Jason, quickly, because uh, again, conscious of time, but just quickly, we're talking primetime Ali here versus primetime um, Tyson. Obviously, that focuses in Tyson on that early uh, powerful run where he was unbeatable. Now, what I think is fascinating, if we're going to talk fantasy here, um, arguably, the prime of Ali's career was shorn asunder from him that we will never see on tape. Those two and a half, nearly three years where, you know, he had his license revoked. He was facing prison time. He couldn't even fight in like Canada uh, because he took the political stance that he did. We're not getting political. We're just simply uh, stating that from 24 to 27, three of the absolute prime years of Muhammad Ali athletically were taken away from him. So I guess if we're going to extend the hyper, uh, like the hypothetical here and you're, you, you, you do box, you, you, you understand, just give us an insight into how damn good, nay, beyond great Ali might've been in those three years and what kind of a difference even that might've made to the legend that is Muhammad Ali. What I think as well, uh, adding to your explanation of why you think 2-1 to Ali over Tyson is I think Tyson, for all his brilliance, was almost just defined by that peekaboo style. Whereas Ali, you look at the different fights that he had and, and he changed his style. You look at the Fraser approach and he kind of uh, was more on the front foot than on Foreman. He was, he was very defensive. But... In terms of your question about fighting at peak abilities, like uh, so with my work that I do with football uh, data and football injuries and things like that, the peak of a, uh, an athlete is about 24 to 27, 28 years old. And to take that away is, is heartbreaking. It's really sad. And he could have had a few more fights under the belt. He could have solidified and possibly, you know, he could have remained unbeaten in that time, but he may have also had a slip up and got that all important fourth win that he wanted to do when when he entered the ring again, probably probably to the detriment a little bit of his health and fitness and everything. But he wanted that lineage. And it, it the the amazing thing about Ali was he was already so complete with this amazing story, but he, he wanted to add to it. And yeah, the, the fact that he lost two, maybe uh, three years there because of ridiculous kind of politics at play there in sport um, is it's kind of unforgivable. My my last question before we round it up to you, Tony, though, is you've got Rumble in the Jungle, you've got Thriller in Manila. 
what would you name this fight and where would it be hosted? Because a, a, a boxing match of this magnitude needs a name and a venue that matches the magnitude of the two fighters. But moving things on as we are in this wonderful Winter Wonderland extended podcast version, uh, which needs needs more. We couldn't just leave it there. Jason, what you got next? So coming up next, we've gone through Fantasy F1. We've got boxing there. We have to talk about the world sport, football. And obviously football is is my main one, but you know, I love so many sports and this is why it's brilliant because I have so many fantasies about so many different sports stars, so many players. And I think this one again, similar to my F1 chat, allows an expose of the talent of so many different people here. I love the kind of Ali Tyson fight there, but it, with my ideas, I've almost kind of trying to expose as many of those brilliant stars as possible. Now, one of the big kind of debates that you see all the time in football, uh, you see it on TalkSport, you see it on, on when you're down the pub, when you're in the stadium, people go, oh, football ain't what it used to be. Oh, these players now, they're, they're too soft, they're too this, too that. And I would love to see a fantasy game where we find out which football was the best, the old or the new. So I would dub this as the greatest footballing tournament of all time to answer the age-old question of which is the best modern or best old 11s put against each other. Now, I think one of the big things, it's more symbolic. There's no reason for it apart from its symbolism, but we should define modern football as since 1992. It's kind of an old joke. You've said it to me many times on here. Uh, Ace Face Turvey, GG Graham Griffin kind of has as well that, you know, I, I'm part of the younger generation that kind of looks as the Premier League is the only hey, league. Football, football didn't happen before Premier League, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So really, it's just going to be a load of modern teams playing. But no, that this is the whole kind of debate, isn't it? That before 1992, there was a different style of football player, manager, and just football in general that was maybe closer to its roots, more working class, more accessible to the individual, maybe closer to the individual fan that maybe people are more nostalgic about. And I get that. But what I would love to see, now I've kind of gone big brain here. I want it to be a tournament and I've kind of given a lot of thought to it. I want there to be a manager from kind of each era. So every decade is kind of represented because you see that every decade kind of has a manager or a philosophy that dominates it. And so we'll kind of have the best from each decade from the advent of football, the Victorian era, up until, obviously, modern day. What I would like to do as well is for each manager to kind of pick their players from that era and kind of represent the decade, have it out on the pitch so that he can kind of go, right, this is my best eleven. So we can, maybe Jose Mourinho can represent the 2010s, um, Arsene Wenger's got to be in there, Sir Alex Ferguson, but you kind of even go back to the old days of, of when Huddersfield Town dominated football. It, it Everything is going to be on exposed here. So the best managers could choose their teams. And in this imaginary scenario, because obviously in the 2010s, 
Messi and Ronaldo played. They could be picked by the manager as well in the 2020s, just just for fairness. And obviously these players could play multiple times in multiple games. This is fantasy. They're allowed to, to do that sort of thing. Now, like the Champions League, I want to make it as fair so that there'd be two legs, no kind of bias. It would be as neutral as possible. But one thing that I will put in, and this always really irritates me, none of those away goals. I think that has really ruined some of the best Champions League ties where, oh, the the teams are drawing, but one goes through on away goals when there could be more goals kind of had. People shut up shop and, and kind of defend those leads. We're not going to be having none of that. So, Jason, I really like that stipulation, but I want to ask you this. Uh, one of the things I really appreciated about our sportscast conversation when we played Fantasy F1 was the equalizing factor that you provided, whereby you neutralized any kind of mechanization and everybody was playing with a level for playing field, uh, car wise. But obviously, in the kind of debates that, that we all love on this footballing conversation, you know, the ball itself. Uh, is has evolved massively course, over yeah. <laughs> the years. As good as Ronaldo is, and maybe I'll be wrong here, I will go out on a limb to say that he'd struggle to impose such amazing spin control with, for instance, the kind of ball that uh, the Wizard of uh, Blackpool, Stanley Matthews, was utilising. And again, just as little subtle things in this modern era, you see everybody with the Under Armour, et cetera, et cetera, back in the just again way before my time but you know in the 20s 30s the baggy baggy shorts surely not conducive to you know supreme um physiological sprinting are you applying a certain neutrality and if you are how does that work to be fair to all because again if people had to upgrade to modern times then they need to get used to that. And vice versa, if people have to forgive the way of breaking it down, but regress into a more sort of ancient uh, mode of dress, use of ball, then again, if you've grown up into that, then that bequests you uh, infinite advantages. So how are you working with the medium of the kit and indeed the very ball in this wonderful fantasy world that you're beginning to address to us? A bit like the the F1 situation, the neutralness, the fairness would be uh, given by all equipment would be the same, but it would be slightly different to the modern era. So that, again, it's something slightly different that none of them have played with, and so they all have to adapt with it. Um, they can choose what kind of clothes that they wear because obviously if, if they like the old style of boot, um, we can kind of say that, for safety's sake, the maybe the studs are similar, but apart from that, if they want to wear the old boots, I mean, they could be like India in the 1966 World Cup and just wear no boots at all. But uh, the, the thing is, I do want this kind of neutrality. I do want to ensure that across the ages that there is fairness. And what I would also say is the tournament would be split. So the uh, old teams would all play the old teams, the new teams would play the new teams until they reach the final so that you've got the best of the best to play one another. So maybe the 1970s team then plays the 2010s team picked or managed by, I don't know, Pep Guardiola against um, 
you know, a, a 1970s manager, Jock Steen or something like that, which, again, I, I hope that kind of gives fairness to the individuals. It is as fair as possible. And the fact that nobody would have played with this football and the equipment used would mean that they've all got to adapt in a certain way. I think it would be maybe a hyper-modern football. It would be the lighter one. But if they're all given a a month or so to kind of train like you would before a tournament, maybe a a pre-season period, which is, again, so important for ensuring the fitness of players... But yeah, that that kind of equipment there. And in this fantasy situation, I'd like to say that there's no injuries. Uh, Players can be like subbed off. You can have as many subs as possible, but it's uh, a set bench of, uh, let's say, 11 players so that you can kind of refresh that, change the tactics. So everybody's kind of getting the same kind of fairness, uh, that ability to forge relationships as well. But at the same time, I want to see... Just the football again, a bit like the F1. I think it's a little bit easier with the car because with the new car, you have to adapt to it every season. Whereas with this, a new football might be very different for the ones in the 1880s. Well, what I'm just thinking, and I do appreciate this, I think it's fascinating, is, as you say, these kind of debates are uh, ones that we've all shared. I know you've had them. I know you've got views on them, so do tweet at Verulam Sports. But... Where I think this is a little bit different, and I totally appreciate that we are obviously indulging in utter fantasy here, but the X factor here is unfortunately a biological one, and to a degree a cultural one, because if you consider the natural advantages that professional athletes have these days, particularly in this context of football, um, you look at the uh, regime, for instance, that Ronaldo has, uh, even going back, you know, just a generation to the, um, you know, um, slightly, let's call it even in the early Premier League uh, era, you know, 92, 93, even up to, I'd say, mid to, mid to late night. Maybe even, let's call it, there was an epoch change paradigm shift with Wenger entering the Premier League, for instance, Right. Uh, you know, you, you literally see images post-game of uh, people drinking excessively, smoking even. You know me, I am a, you know, as much as I love sports, I am an armchair fan uh, and an addict merely. And, you know, I'm a smoker, you know, so I'm not getting on a high horse. But you do see these images of these, you know, bona fide world-class footballers, bona fide athletes in the sense that they would be considerably fitter in context than the average Joe. But physiologically, culturally, just like I say, that's even just going back a snippet. The natural advantages of our modern era is so outshining just that miniature leap back in time and again it's beyond my ability to imagine so I'm just extrapolating that trajectory and thinking like I say say this was literally from inception going back to Victorian time well that's only going to be compounded and amplified so whilst theoretically the equaliser is 90 minutes of football I would suggest over the course of that 90 minutes for the duration the natural physiological advantages that our modern era has so outstrips all that came before it as to mean that any endeavors in much as you've done in this wonderful context here and i massively value it as 
best as you've been able to explain. I just can't simply imagine, uh, even with a leap of faith, it being neutralized, if that makes sense. I just think that the modern advantages are so transcendent almost that we can't really even bridge the gap, even in this, this abstract. Uh, the comparison is fair as well in the, in the F1 world as well, because drivers back in the 50s would not be able to compete physically. That's that's why I'm kind of allowing that pre-season period to maybe get up there. But years and years of alcoholism and smoking and, and things like that would um, would catch up with these individuals. I suppose in this fantasy scenario, I'm imagining that the players are in peak fitness from their era so that they can kind of then train and it'd be a bit like Futurama you know where those heads were were in the jars you kind of put that onto a physical body so that they've got the brain they've got the legs and and that ability to move about but it's not their old body which is probably (laughs) ruined by by all those sorts of things but another kind of discussion point there Tony which is totally fair as well to kind of say that this might not be possible. And I think this, again, highlights all the problems with people having these discussions down the pub. It's not fair to compare different eras. Is the different rules that are in the game today. The pass-back rule, that's a huge one that came in in 1992 as well. Kind of, again, part of that symbolic change in football, but it ushered in a new attacking style. Goalkeepers couldn't hold on to the ball like Liverpool did in the 70s, which was kind of one of their hallmarks, getting the clock down, Arsenal 1-0 to the Arsenal, that kind of old adage, was further helped by being able to just kind of kick the ball back and the goalkeeper. These are all problems, and I'm just hoping that in this fantasy situation that having that two, or a month or two to be able for these yeah. players to get their heads round the new rules might help that, but then... Let's be realistic. It takes 10,000 hours for somebody to become excellent at a certain uh, sort of sport or, um, you know, having that sort of skill set. So it might take them a time. But then football's football. It usually transcends age, uh, ability. And you can see little kids in uh, streets around the world kind of just playing with a little ball made from, I don't know, a crushed up can or a a bottle. And then they do become Premier League footballers. I think these footballers who have played with a football should have the ability to change quite a bit uh, and uh, have that ability when, you know, young children can make that leap. So, oh, you know, absolutely agree with you there. Uh, And this is why, although it's nigh on impossible, it's always so much fun to have these kind of debates. I can well imagine just uh, Eusebio fitting into a, a, a current you know, Real Madrid team or a Puskas um, going you know, toe-to-toe, uh, metaphorically speaking, with Messi on a, a, metaphorically speaking, again, brute skill level, for instance. So, yeah, no, I totally get that. Fantastic. Okay, so we're breaking it down literally from inception. Uh, throughout the, you're defining it decade by decade, managed by the uh, par excellent manager of each uh, decade and uh, in a kind of Champions League context, uh, in as far as we can possibly get, some type of neutrality, kit-wise, probably futuristic, and 
they play out to some kind of final. Uh, I mean, this is supreme. It's kind of blowing my fragile little mind, Jason. What's uh, what, what else is next? Where are you taking this journey? Well, I suppose we got to have a venue. Now, I kind of debated this, but it seems natural again, maybe a bit selfish, but it does seem to be at Wembley because obviously England is where the origin of the sport is. Hey, do you know, I like that awful lot, as I say, but I'm just going to throw a curveball in here straight away. Hit me up. And I'm saying a game like this needs to be played at a venue of the biggest magnitude. And I say we go Myra Kakarano or however you pronounce it in, in Rio, the, you know, which I think still, I might be wrong, is still probably capacity-wise the biggest, certainly uh, football uh, arena. I might be wrong on that, but that would be maybe where I would pitch it. See, I did have this thought I did look up the largest stadiums in the world and I think the largest stadium in the world is in India or North Korea and it can hold like a million people. But I debated against it because Brazil is obviously a great footballing nation so maybe the the American R would be a good one or, or Mexico and a lot of people would turn up. But I think that having almost the game to, to end all games, end all debate should almost end where it started that's that was the kind of thought in my head yeah and and also because you're having this at neutral grounds around the world there would be that opportunity to visit brazil mexico america this could be played continent wise obviously there there is that time difference thing but if players are all kind of partaking uh, in that process themselves then they'll all have to kind of adapt and we're kind of seeing that now with this Euro 2021 that was supposed to be last year it's continent wide and I I like this idea that there's not just one kind of host nation or host city is going to be played across the continent and loads of people get to see it so I think that would be the important mission for me as well is every decade is represented but almost every individual around the world can at least kind of get the opportunity to get close to the action. I love it. And that is what makes football the world's game, isn't it? The beautiful game. Uh, it's one of the most simple games, as you say, Jason. Literally, if all you've got is something with which to kick, something that you can fashion as goalposts, right? You're playing football, aren't you? It is. Uh, it's its spirit. It's its beautiful uh, capacity. And it's why uh, it will always, as far as I can see, remain the world's game. So I really like that a little element there. I think it's a lovely touch. Yeah, so I think we've kind of sorted all those rules. And then I'm not sure what the trophy would look like, but uh, I- I'm dead excited. Maybe, uh, maybe in my head to kind of play that out tonight. But Tony... You have to tell me what your last fantasy sporting situation is because I really enjoyed this. It's kind of great. There's a little bit of nostalgia because we're obviously discussing old teams, but also kind of almost perfecting the sports in our own images here. So, Tony, bring in the end of what has been truly a winter wonderland. I think this has been full of wonder and enjoyment. Yeah, Jason, as always, I live for these. They are an awful lot of fun. Um, but before I do so, I'm going to say this much, uh, Machine McKenna, since this uh, fantasy, which is, let's uh, be fair, is never going to be possible given, you know, the laws of physics and the nature of reality. But since it has been so much fun, and I'm sure you listening have enjoyed it too, I say this much. 
since it has been your fantasy that you've uh, entertained us with, they are playing for the Jason McKenna Cup. And it is literally <laughs> a, a kind of mechanized version of your uh, of your good self, Jason. Oh, like so there that. we go. That's that's what it, that's that's what they're playing for. That's what it's oh, that, that all is a kind tribute. about. So yeah, that's just my uh, little thought there. Anyways. Now, my next one is this, and my final one for today. We could do this all the time. It's so much fun. I'm sure you've got your views, and do tweet it. Come on. I'd love to hear from you. Tweet at Random Sport. Email in a more thorough, in-depth analysis. It could be on the football lines like we've discussed. It could be rugby, cricket, golf. The world of sport is your oyster. It's not limited by the rules of time, space, physics, just let your imagination run wild. What sporting collisions, what Titanic tussles, what um, David versus Goliaths would you love to see? Get involved. Tweet at Verulam Sport. But I'm now taking us to the sport of golf for my final um, challenge, if you would, my final imaginary context uh, contest. And I am pitting the two most winningest golfers in all majors together. The man who stands atop the tree at the moment, the golden bear himself, Jack Nicklaus, 18 majors, 73 PJO Tour titles. He um, has uh, not only won the Grand Slam, but he has the double and the triple Grand Slams to his name versus the second on the list, with 15 majors, but the man who is joint top all time with most PGA Tour titles, level with Sam Sneed, Tiger Woods is second on the Grand Slam winning list um, with 15 majors. He's level on top with Sam Sneed with 82 uh, all-time PGA Tour victories, the Golden Bear versus the Tiger. Now, I don't want to do this like in Ryder Cup, because I think in this context, what made these two warriors the best of their respective eras is the fact that where they really came to the party were in those majors. Again, I just give it the historical context here. Again, both Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods have not only done the mythical Grand Slam of golf, the winning all four of the majors, which is the Masters, the US Open, the British Open, and the PGA, um, but they've both doubled it up and indeed three-peated. But all time, all time, only five golfers have a Grand Slam. whole heap of golfers have three, not least our own, uh, Rory McIlroy. But only five golfers all time have got that Grand Slam. Of course, Woods, of course, Nicholas, also Gene Sarenson, Ben Hogan, and Gary Player. You may remember the name, Gary Player. I've cited him several times, one of my favorite quotes all time. It's funny. The harder I work, the luckier I get. Gary Player gave us that quote. Only five golfers all time have the career Grand Slam. Tiger and Jack have it on three occasions. Amazing. But where they really came to the fore was in that tournament play. So I'm not going to do it almost like the Ryder Cup style, where it's just Tiger versus Jack. Where actually, Tiger's record, I haven't looked it up, but his record compared to his overall record isn't as strong and Nicholas himself actually played in Ryder Cups, won Ryder Cups, but didn't embrace them. Uh, but it was in this tournament style. 
So I'm throwing into the mix all the various different greats across their eras. So again, we've got that big five. Of course, we've got the likes of Ernie Ells, uh, Phil Mickelson. Got to throw in into this modern day mixture, uh, Rory McIlroy, and you know all the modern greats. So it's a proper tournament played across the four majors, but it's done essentially with a mindset that we're going to play off Tiger Woods versus Gary uh, versus Jack Nicklaus. And I don't know in my head whether we're going to alternate either nine holes each uh, or just every other hole. Either way, across all those four majors, 50% of the holes will be played with uh, an evolving form of the clubs that were of the Nicklaus era and 50% of the Tiger Woods era up to modern day. So they could, I don't know if that will be every, alternating every other hole or they could maybe choose to play nine holes straight with the one that they're most accustomed to, then flip it over. I'll leave it up to those two in this mythical world to decide how they deploy their clubs. But essentially they've got two sets of clubs and one of which is from the Nicholas era and one of which is from the Tiger Woods era. They have to use uh, 50% of their of the time, their one from their own time and 50% from the other. Again, allowing for a bit of time to familiarize in some form of off-season. And again, those rules in this fantasy land map out to all of the other greats that we're mapping out across this uh, four uh, tournaments, the four majors. Again, those four majors, just in case you're unfamiliar, the US Open, the Masters out in Augusta every year, the British Open, and the US PGA. And yeah, I, I mean, look, these guys are absolutely re remarkable. As I say, the great, the, um, the golden bear, Jack Nicholas, is, as I love to say, the winningest from a major perspective with 18. Uh, he won his first, the U.S. Open, age just 22, back in 1962. And he won his 18th and final major, 46 years of age, the 86 Masters. Uh, and that remains that tournament, the Masters, the historic Masters, uh, oldest winner. He's got six Grand Slams in the Masters, the most successful there. Four uh, U.S. Opens five PGAs, three British Opens. Tiger Woods is next up, again, second, number two all-time in the majors with 15 majors. Uh, he's just behind Nicholas in the Masters with five, but that last one came uh, in 2019, almost, well, over 20 years since he won his first and burst onto the scene back in 1997. So both of these unique talents, era-defining champions in two wonderful, splendid eras of the great game of, of golf, have shown uh, an ability to evolve their game. They've shown that consistency, which is one of the trademarks of greatness. They've shown the will of iron, to use a pun, so necessary to remain a consistent champion. And I just think throwing these two gladiators together, not just on a mano a mano, where 
it's almost a little bit surreal because the psychology of golf again is that you are in a tournament where there are so many other people to compete against and with again tiger's record pales into insignificance really in the in the math in the Ryder cup which is almost that team context it's keeping on that individual level but not on a one-on-one but allowing for all these other greats to bring them on, to spur them on to greater things. That's where I feel that this fantasy will truly uh, come to life. I'm excited for it. And I, I tell you, it's, it's just going to be such scintillating golf. They bring the best out of one another. Um, I'm going to back Nicholas overall to win more. Uh, again, coming back to the similar logic that I used earlier in our sportscast version of this, when we were chatting fantasy F1, I think there are jolly good reasons why people are quote unquote, the winningest and tiger again has showed remarkable will to bounce back from massive personal adversity, but I'm giving the edge ever so slightly to Nicholas, but my goodness me in that early era of tiger dominance, the aura that he developed was, I think almost off the charts very few, uh, we're talking Ali could have it. You know, Jonah Lomo in rugby possessed it. Nicholas oozed it. But that early uh, Tiger Woods dominance, uh, and again, his longevity. By the way, Tiger Woods, like I say, leveled up with Sam Sneed as the most successful golfer, notwithstanding the majors. So considering all possible tournament play. Also, Tiger Woods, cumulatively, has the most time ranked world number one. Um, So that's quite a telling statistic. And again, a reflection of the aura that I mentioned. So I think that'd be a factor. But my goodness me, the golden bear, golden for a reason, because he glistened. And my goodness me, I'm literally salivating as a golf fan about this particular fantasy. Jason, I'd love briefly your thoughts on the way I've broken this one down. I think what's really funny is obviously it's a, it's a tiger and a bear battling it out to be a goat. <laughs> it is the, <laughs> is the funny kind of battle of, of who to be the best animal here. But I think one of the interesting things of tiger versus Nicholas will be, and I think I back you here with Nicholas winning because he battled arguably in an era of stiffer competition. And so maybe that ability to fight it out against five or six other amazing golfers. I don't want to insult the people that played alongside Tiger Woods at the time, but really Mickelson was his biggest rival in opposition, wasn't it? Whereas... Well, look, I'll tell you a fantastic quote, right? The guy, uh, Tiger Woods, like I say, cumulatively had the longest reign um as world's number one um it was it was absolutely staggering uh across really kind of two periods 1999 to 2004 he was world number one uh, consecutively for 264 weeks and then 2005 to 2010 cumulatively for 281 weeks uh in that time he claimed 13 of his 15 majors across those two time spans, 1990 to 2010. Now, um, the person who kind of topped him from the top spots just for a few months in 2005 was a very good golfer, Marco Marco Mira. 
and these guys lived in the same uh, state. I think I think they were borderline neighbours. I mean, it's quite a nomadic lifestyle, the golfing one. You're travelling all over the world all the time. But Marco Miras, uh, somebody asked him, said, you know, you're, you're world number one. I mean, that's amazing. He says, I'm not even the number one golfer on my street. <laughs> He acknowledged that, you know, he was, but for a time, you know, he'd done his business. I think he got two majors in a particular year and uh, that uh, helped him to that number one spot, but just a blip in the Tiger era. But I mean, that gives it context, really. Uh, And it was just a phenomenal, consistent reign of dominancy and imagination of shots. And also two things, socio-historically speaking, to break barriers, literal uh, glass barriers for the African-Caribbean community uh, and the black community when it comes to golf is uh, staggering. I mean, just staggering. Um, And also, uh, you know, just to do it so young as well. That's so divergent. It's just a clash of personalities. And I just love it. I, I think this is a real, real compelling one. Yeah, it's one of the great ones. And I think it's easier than maybe some of the other things like with football, Ronaldo, Messi, that there's a lot of kind of discussion points with F1. But these two kind of played at a time that was fairly close so that it is comparable. And golf, I mean, obviously the balls and the the clubs have changed a little bit over the years, but it's still fairly traditional in the sense that you're kicking, uh, sorry, you're hitting it upfield and everything. But I do think that Nicholas, the fact that he, you know, was going toe to toe with Palmer, player Watson, Trevino, all people that had six or more majors, and still came out on top. I think that that would be the the ceiling factor for me. But I don't think it will be a walkover. Of course not. They're both amazing sportsmen, great individuals. But I do think that maybe Nicholas has the mental capacity to handle the pressure and I just I think the sad thing with all these things is you've kind of discussed what would be a great tournament there to to give as much fairness as possible the sad thing for me is it would have to come to an end at some point because then we'd have our answer wouldn't we um and it would be it would give the answer to so many golfers questions but would that almost remove some of the fun as well? Like with the the F1 thing, with the football thing, these are great fantasies and we're getting the big answer. And I suppose my final point here is, would the sad thing be, would it be removing some of the mystery and folklore that we have around sport? Are you kidding me, Jason? One of the great things in all of sport is the uh, ifs and buts and sweet, sweet notes <laughs> within this ultimate fantasy. Can you imagine the moments of controversy? And, oh, if that had happened, then the momentum would have swung. And, you know, it's just taken it <laughs> to another level, I would suggest, across four majors. And, hey, in the four majors, it's entirely plausible. There's a possible universe within this uh, realm of fantasy where it levels up to all and they either have to decide, well, we're going to have to decide this off on a playoff or they go, well, we'll create a fifth major, uh, you know, or, <laughs> well, we're just going to have to repeat to do it all again next year. Uh, the point is, Jason, this has been an awful lot of fun, but we're talking here sporting theatre and whether it's in the realm of, uh, of fantasy or in our real world, 
It's why we love sports. And it will always throw up matters for debate. There will always be those momentum-shifting moments, those magical moments of sheer genius where somebody takes the mantle. And that's why we utterly love sport. That's why we are utterly honoured and indeed privileged to do what we we do here, both on Verum Sport, podcasting and across Sportscast, each and every Saturday evening, 6 through 7 on 92.6 FM. Um, I know you've enjoyed listening to this because I know I've had an awful lot of fun putting it all together. There are so many other possible debates that simply we could devote an infinite array of lifetimes to pontificating upon. Sadly, we don't have that luxury in our reality. But nevertheless, what we have had a lot of fun doing right here, right now, in real time, is debating, dissecting, and indeed analysing our winter wonderlands, fantasy sporting moments across multiple eras, across multiple sports, but inevitably we've missed a few. So get involved, keep involved. Want to hear from you. Tweet us at Verulam Sport. Email in sport at radioverulam.com with your own personal favourites, sporting fantasies. Let your imagination run wild. Get involved from us and continue continue to be involved also we say it every week we passionately mean it it's your show every single bit as much as it is ours but that applies even more so this week because keep your beady eyes particularly across twitter because we're going to be putting up three more debates for consideration and you're going to be choosing them framing them for us for our next three weeks so get involved, engage, and give us our next three-week sportscast conversations that we will look forward to getting down and dirty with. So that's going to be up for you any moment now. But right here, right now, this has been Tony Rice alongside the iconic, legendary machine, Jason McKenna. And I would like to wish you all good health, great happiness. Keep engaging both in all forms of sport, in reality and indeed fantasy. And I'll look forward to speaking with you again very soon.